This is Happy Lifestyle Online Show, where we talk about viewpoints and experiences on what it takes to have a fulfilled and happy life. Join host Lisa Caprelli as she brings stories and experiences from leaders, entrepreneurs, professionals, and creative people making a difference in the world. Dr. Michael Ashley. So, Michael, what made you become a writer? I'm pretty glad you asked. Um, Let's put this closer to you. Okay, I'm going to stop cheating. Yeah, because the transparent needs to. Yes, they don't want to hear that. Um, Good question. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, When I was 10 years old, I fell in love with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the story. My parents separated, and my mom was dating a new guy. And his name was Richard, and he used to tell my brother and me stories when we went to sleep. And they were start, they started hobbits and wizards and elves and goblins. And I loved the stories. I didn't realize until sometime later, I was, I was in fourth grade when this happened, that they actually belonged to a book by J.R.R. Tolkien. And so when I found that the, the books actually existed, I loved them. And so I started reading the books. And they're very long books. But I finished the trilogy within probably three or four months. I read one book, the, the middle book, in one night because I loved it so much. And so around the same time, my fourth grade teacher gave us a writing assignment to do our own creative book. And I did one all about bubbles and the things that I grew in my mind because I was reading these books. And I turned it in, and the teacher got very mad at me, and she called my parents. She called my mom, and she said, Michael plagiarized this story because there's no way a little boy wrote this. And my mom said, no, he wrote that story. I saw him write it. I can prove it. And so once my, my mom proved that I actually wrote this and it was original, it came from me, she completely changed her tune and she said, wow, and he's a really great writer. And so she began encouraging me. And so until then, I never realized that I could be a writer. And so it made me want to be a writer. That, that teacher's name was, was Mrs. Jaworski. And actually, I, I ended up talking to her for the first time since the fourth grade, just a few days ago. You did? Mm-hmm. And she reached out to my brother. She thought my brother was me on Facebook, and so she's congratulating him for something. And he said, no, that's actually my brother. He's actually a professional writer now. So I thanked her for encouraging me. But after, ever after that, I began writing stories. So after that one, I began writing stories about myself and my, my friends. Um, I was really into the movie Young Guns and Young Guns 2. And so mm-hmm. I started writing Western stories about my friends and me. And I wrote um, a different... Um, a group of stories about my alter ego. His name was Jim Turbulence. And Jim what? Jim Turbulence. Okay. I wrote another one. <laughs> so I wrote all these different stories and I would share them with my friends. And when I was beginning, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I just began reading a lot. Um, I moved schools when I was 15 years old. And um, I was one of the most popular people in my school before I moved. But then when I moved schools, I refused to make new friends because my, I thought I would, I'd be able to move back and hang out with my old friends. And so that didn't happen. And my freshman year, I had no friends at the school. So what I would do is at lunchtime, I would sneak off to the library and just read on my own. And I read all these books from The Great Gatsby to um, a bunch of books by Ernest Hemingway. I read On the Road. I read a lot of poetry and I just knew that um, I wanted to be a writer. And so when I, I didn't, I hated school when I was growing up, so I would keep the, the book that we were supposed to be reading, the textbook here, and i put my own book um, behind it, and I'd read the books that I wanted to read. Wow. So from a very young age, I knew that I wanted to be a writer and tell stories. How many books do you think you've read since then? 
Um, thousands. Thousands. Wow. Yeah. And you, so after college, you became and did a lot of freelance work to get your name known as a writer, right? It, writing, writing comes, it's a very arduous job. Yes, yeah. Um, back when I, my major in college originally was political science. Um, my dad's a lawyer and wanted me to be a lawyer too, and for a long time I thought that was what I was going to do. And I took a really um, influential philosophy class when I was a sophomore in college, and I decided that I wanted to switch majors, so my, philosophy, my, my major became philosophy, and when I came, I lived in London my, my junior year, and when I came back to to uh, University of Missouri where I was going to school, I took really two very influential classes for me in my writing career. The first one was I took a playwriting class and two of my plays got to be put, put on at my university and the second one was um, I got into the, um, the journalism school and I started taking on the journalism classes and I became a reporter for the Columbia Missouri. So I knew I wanted to be a writer coming out of college but it took me, I had, I had a small business, I was actually an entrepreneur right out of college um, with the idea that I would make enough money that when I came to California that I could get into the industry without having to be poor. It didn't exactly work out that way, but yes, when I, after I graduated from getting my master's degree, I, um, I had to do a lot of paying my dues and taking a lot of different writing jobs to, to build my name out there and get, get my name. Was there a time that you thought of giving up on it because it was so harder than you expected? Um, no, I never, I never, I've, I entertained the idea for maybe an hour once, <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I've always known that I would, that's what I wanted to do, and I, I didn't, I didn't want to give up. Good. How do you feel writing can influence or change someone's perspective? Well, I think everything comes down to consciousness. I think... People make mistakes when it comes, make a mistake when they think about a revolution. They think about a revolution in, in terms of something physical, but I think in order to really, in a, in a way to, in, actually let me step back and say this. I think for a long period of time, the powers that be thought that the way that they could control people was physically, but over time, they grew more sophisticated and realized the, the best way to control people is through hearts and minds. Nowadays, they call it um, public relations, but it, it really comes down to a term called propaganda. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that the way that you affect people is through their beliefs. And the way that you can really affect people the most, the most powerfully, the most powerfully I know, is through the written word. And so if you want to change people's beliefs, there's no shortage of examples of how they've done it from the Bible to um, to the, the curriculum that we read, to any number of books. It's no accident we read, we read books in school because there's something very durable and long-lasting about the written word. People tend to believe what they read. You hear something, it's cheap, it's ephemeral, but when you read something that has a heft to it, you tend to believe it. And so, to get back to, get back to what I was saying, um, I think that the only real way that you can make a lasting change on people is through their consciences, through their hearts and minds, and the best way to do it is through the written word. I love that. How can writing give a voice to someone's message? Well, um, similar to what I was saying before, um, it's a good way to distill it. I think that the very act of writing itself helps to crystallize your thoughts and ideas. You're, you can be unsure about what you want to say, you have all these ideas floating around in your mind, 
But when you take the act of crystallizing and putting down on paper, it becomes something more concrete. There's a person named Jordan Peterson who, who said this recently. Um, the act of writing itself is, is a, a form of, of teaching because by writing it out, it forces you to educate yourself. By thinking something through and putting your, your thoughts down cogently on, on the page, it forces you to direct your energies into understanding your subject matter. So it's an act of both learning and teaching. You're teaching other people by having it on the page, but you're also learning more about your message by taking something that's in your mind and putting it onto something tangible on the page. And have you seen that happen with the writing you've done to other people and ghostwriting and helping them write their own books or stories? That has influenced people? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there's so many examples of that um, from people that wanted to rebrand themselves to people that wanted to be considered a thought leader. Just recently, a few of my clients, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my clients um, just came out with a, a memoir. He's a, a major league baseball agent, and he came out with a memoir. And he wanted to, people to understand his background. So, so many of his uh, potential people that he was going to sign as, as their agent um, are at-risk youth. And he is a person who managed to survive a childhood where he was bouncing around in juvenile halls. So he understands what it's like to live the same life as the people that he's representing. And just today, actually, he told me, first of all, he's a number one bestseller in Amazon, which is exciting. Um, and just today, he told me that he was on Inside Edition a couple weeks ago. So that's an instance of someone who is now getting their message out there in a great way. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm a great baseball agent, and I'm like, yeah, that's wonderful. But when you see that in print, if you see the acclaim that comes from uh, not only being an Amazon bestseller, but also being on a, on a, on a, a well-known TV show, it really... Well, actually, it really comes down to perception. It really helps you get the perception that you're looking right. for. And you're able to, he's able to reach masses of people that he may not have otherwise have had the mm -hmm. opportunity. Yeah, and also one more thing about that. Uh, Stephen King, there's a really powerful book that made a big difference in my life. It's called, it's called On Writing. And he says the one, the one version of telepathy that he knows is the written word. Because if you think about it, um, I can tell you something and I can just reach you right here. But if I write something down, it's going from my mind to your mind. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You could be on a different planet, actually. You could be on a different time. We're still looking at texts that come from people like Socrates. Well, Socrates didn't write anything down, but Plato. Yeah. Anyone from history, it's being transmitted from mind to mind um, across different cultures, across different time periods and mm -hmm. geographical zones. That, to me, is um, that's magic. That's awesome. What have been your favorite or influential books, Michael, that have changed your life? I'm sure there's many. Um, Yes. So, of course, The Lord of the Rings was the first one uh, that I gave you. Another one that was big, I think that's, um, well, when I was uh, 14 years old, I read the book On the Road by Jack Kerouac, and that made me fall in love with the power of writing. I already knew I loved the written word, but here was someone that took his zest for life and all the excitement of being in love with the world and put it into a book. And the language was so wonderful and powerful that it felt like they, they, they teach this book in, in classes. They call it the, the transcendental movement. But to me, it was trans, it, it, and to me especially, it was transcendental because here was somebody that was talking about the power of um, to appreciate beauty, something that's beyond yourself, 
and I just felt the rush of being alive when I, when I read that book. And I've, I've probably read that book 10 or 15 times in my life. Um, I, another big, big influence on me was a book called uh, Star Maker. It's a science fiction book, and um, I read it when I was 33. And what was so, and I used to give this book away to people, because I still do actually, because it made me realize something. Um, what happens in the book is this guy, it's, it's interesting, this book came out in the 1930s, right before World War II, and this gentleman is laying in a field in England, and all of a sudden he feels his consciousness leave his body, and it travels up to the sky, and then it leaves the planet, and it goes into the, into the solar system, and it goes into various solar systems, and it goes into galaxies far away from here. And what happens is, he is without a body, he's just consciousness, and he goes to planet to planet, and he, there's a term from Star Trek, um, it's called mind melding. So he's basically mind melding with other consciousnesses around the universe, and he's meeting all these different beings. But what it made me realize is, that eventually what happens is these minds, he doesn't just join with one mind, he joins with a group of minds. So you can imagine there's a hundred different people, like the ultimate mastermind group, where they're all sharing their thoughts, kind of like the way um, a hive works with bees. Where each part of it is certainly its own entity, but the, all the entities are together at one. And what, it, what happened was, then it would be just not just that group, but it'd be entire planets of consciousness. And what it made me realize is the possibility that everyone could be included in politics. So my, I grew up, my dad was the mayor of our town, I grew up in a family that was very much invested into politics. And I always grew up thinking about things in terms of the two-party solution, you know, rights, Democrats and Republicans. But here was an idea of people, that, not just people because it was with other creatures, that everybody could be part of it, that you could bring in, that everyone was valuable, no, no matter who you are. And so this, if you take this idea to its further, furthest conclusion, Jung had this idea that the human being, a human being is capable of being an angel or a devil given the right circumstances. So people think that, um, that Hitler was irredeemable. Well, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I think that there, everyone has a place, everyone is meaningful, and that the, the way that we will really come together as a people, I hope it's in my lifetime, is when we start to realize that no one should be left out of it. Everyone deserves to have a place. And the best way that you can build a really functioning community is when you say everyone is needed. Every voice is needed, we're all, it's all inclusive. And so that, that was the first time I, that I'd ever really thought that way was from reading that book. Awesome. Do you have favorite words or quotes you find yourself using often? I do. <laughs> I have two quotes. Um, favorite word? Um, I don't know if I have a favorite word, but I have two quotes. Mm -hmm. um, the first one is from Margaret Mead, and it's this, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So um, I think that if you want to do something different, here, good, good example, skip a step. So we spent this book interviewing people that were not content with the status quo, that wanted to do something different, both in their lives or for the people they knew or for the world in general. And when you grow up thinking that way, which is the way that I grew up, um, you get a lot of pushback. People tell you, you can't do that. Um, they say it's never been done, it never will happen. But uh, when, I, when I heard this quote, it reminded me of our founding fathers. Um, or it also reminded me about the Magna Carta. To me, those were two wonderful developments in the, the history of, um, of humanity. 
The first one was the idea that no one is above the rule of law from the Magna Carta. So when I hear people, you know, we interviewed Carrie Case and we talked about human rights the other day, and when I hear people saying that there's no way that, that um, people can change these things, that, that this is the way it's always been and this is the best that we can do, I don't agree with that. I think we can do a lot better, and I think that that it starts with that that small group of people that believe something so strong that they can they can do something about it. You look at the rights that we take for granted now. Um, we look at the fact that we have a middle class. We have a representative democracy. That's because of the um, the division of the founding fathers. Those were a small group of people that did it. Of course, there there are they are um, they're valuable they're valuable people. You know, they made mistakes. A lot of those guys were slave owners. They, they are not without their mistakes and, and their own foibles. However, they did something, they created something that, that we now take for granted, but that's, that's the way of the life, or the way that we see the world. And that idea of democracy didn't just end here, it spread across the world. Um, so that gives me a lot of hope. And, and whenever someone pushes back on something, I think about this, that everything is possible. Yeah. And the second one is um, Martin Luther King uh, says, <clears throat> the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends to justice. I think that we live in very difficult times. I mean, of course, every time is difficult, but it, I think it, especially, it is especially chaotic, chaotic in these times we live now. Um, I think that there is a tendency amongst, especially the older generation these days, to think that everything is going to hell, and that things are bad, and um, that it is only going to get worse. There's no shortage of dystopian movies and books out there that say everything is going to get terrible. Um, but I think that the upward march of humanity has shown that things have gotten better. And yes, it can take time, but it's getting better all the time. And if you, if we wait enough, if, if you wait long enough and you try, if you do what I was saying in the first part, um, that progress does happen. If you look at something like the civil rights, um, it, for many years uh, we had slavery in this country, and then we had Jim Crow laws, and then we, we had, and with my father, my, my dad told me when he grew up in the 1950s, there were still um, uh, signs that said oh, white uh, drinking fountains and colored drinking fountains. And it's, it's, to me, it's, it's amazing, just within, uh, within his lifetime, we had a black president, um, that things can change, and I think that they, they, get, they change for the better. Right. So, do you feel writing is dead when you hear that audio, video is prevalent thanks to technology, YouTube, streaming? that gives more reach to audiences and, and people don't go to the library like you and I grew up doing. Yes, it's dead. No, I'm just <laughs> uh, No, not at all. Um, I, I think it will never go away. I think um, no matter what form writing takes, there, there's something intrinsic, there's something that's, uh, going back to Young for, for a moment, Young um, had the idea of archetypes and um, What's his name? Um, Joseph Campbell said that the, um, the, the, the biggest story archetype of all is the hero's journey. And there's just something about the human psyche and consciousness that, excuse me, um, wants to view the world in terms of story. The way that we understand the world all comes down to story. It's no accident that we tell parables to children to make, help them make sense of the world. If you want to communicate something well, you give it a story. Even what I mentioned earlier about the, the, uh, the founding fathers, that's, that's a myth. I mean, the, I mean, there, there are two elements to it, but they've also been changed over time. You look at the Bible, um, uh, you look at anything that's ever had any power, um, myths are, are the way that we do it through storytelling. So, going back to 
um, the times of Homer, those were verbal stories, those were oral transitions that were, that were passed down. And then after the time of uh, the Gutenberg printing press, you know, now we've been able to have this explosion of writing. And then the, the next greatest development, of course, is the internet. And so um, the writing takes on many different forms. Yes, we may not be reading um, a thousand page books by Tolstoy anymore, but um, writing and content itself is everywhere. And that to me is exciting. I can also say on a personal note that um, I'm happy that I don't just do um, content writing in terms of books, that I do it in terms of multimedia. Uh, for me, it's in my own business. And so um, whether it be scripts, whether it be speeches, whether it be web copy, it does come down to, to the word. Um, and that word may be written, I mean, maybe written on a, a book, excuse me, but um, it does come down to the ideas that we transmit um, through the words. Through, through our words. And so to me, um, people get up in arms and say the younger generation doesn't read. And, and yes, I think there's some element of truth to that. I think we have lost, um, I lost our capacity for long, long form thought in that way. But uh, Terrence McKenna had a really good saying. And he, he said that the way that we understand and shape reality all comes down to the words that we use. Um, it's not possible for me to communicate my ideas to you unless I use, unless I use words. That's how we, we co-create this universe is through the power of words. So to me, that's not going anywhere, even if the way that we consume content changes. Right. Great. Excellent answer. Why do you feel that people may have a hard time expressing themselves with writing? There's so many people who have fear of writing. Because um, it's hard. <laughs> um, I think, like I, as, as I mentioned a second ago, I think... Um, well, I think part of the blame is um, we don't stress it enough. I think a, a big mistake that we've made in this country is we teach to the test with Common Core, mm -hmm. and we've gotten away from really taking, um, really valuing um, what can happen from long form thought. And so when you don't, it's like a muscle, right? If you don't exercise that muscle, it dies. And if you've never used those muscles, you don't have them at all. Mm -hmm. So it's a mistake, I think, that our educators are making where they're not stressing, read those books and then write long form because it is a way to grow your consciousness. It's a way for you to, to build your communication skills. So many of the people that we interview for this book, um, one person in particular thinking about is, um, um, we interviewed his house, Oh, um, Dean Josesto. Yes. Um, cut, that out, cut that out in post. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was saying that's the way, and I think Ken, also, Ken Carey also said it, the best way to get ahead is to be really good with your communication skills. So I think that um, I can't throw all the burden on the educators. I think it's the parents too. And of course, we all have a responsibility to ourselves. If, if your school isn't stressing it, your parents aren't stressing it, then you've got to do um, what's best for you. You've got to read. Um, what's the space? Michael Gerber was saying that. Read a bunch of books. You owe it to yourself to do that. When you're not well-versed and you're not well-practiced in it, then writing can, can be arduous. It can really suck for you. Um, so um, that's why I think it's really difficult. I think the other thing is, the other reason why I think writing is really hard is because it's requiring you to do one of the hardest things in life, which is to think deeply. Um, we live in a culture that, fortunately or unfortunately, values instant gratification. And writing is something that requires real um, reflection and thought. And so when you're, um, when everything is go, 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 and you don't have to do, when, when everything can be satiated right away, when you're not bored anymore, and you don't have to th sit there with your own thoughts, then you're not building those skills I was talking about. You're not stretching those muscles. So when it's time for you to write something, it's gonna be very hard for you. Right. 
So do you feel if someone doesn't have the time to read audiobooks, you, do you accept that for someone's uh, increasing their muscle of, of, of understanding words? Yes, um, I think it's better than nothing. Although for me, I do, I do listen to some things on audiobooks, but for me, I'm a, a visual person, and so I have trouble remembering things and concentrating as much. Probably because I listen to audiobooks when I'm driving, so there's a lot coming at me. I'm trying to make a left turn at the same right. time and trying to understand what they're saying to me. Um, I think it's better than nothing. Um, but I think that really the best thing that you can do if you want to get better at communication, and you know, even if it's not, even if you're not trying to be a writer, the best thing you can do is take the time, disengage from society for a moment, shut out the noise, and read something. Um, and and no matter who you are, there's something that interests you. Um, as I mentioned before, when I was in middle school and high school, I was not interested in the things that they were teaching me. I was interested in what I was reading, and so I found I found my, my purpose and found what, what was exciting to me. So I would recommend the same thing to you. You're into uh, spelunking, you're into uh, space space stories, whatever. Um, read read about it, right. and you'll find whatever what's interesting to you. And you know, interesting for people who do do enjoy writing is before something becomes an audiobook or a movie, it has to be written down. Yeah, yeah. So that is the power of writing. Okay. Uh, what advice do you have for someone who wants to make a difference in the world and stand out on their own against the competition? Well, do you, that seems like there are two different. Uh, make a difference in the world and and yeah, make a difference in the world. Um, and st and I say that because someone can go into a profession that's oh. very commonplace, and they're like, oh, well, there's plenty of writers or there's plenty of attorneys. Yeah. You know, and then they may talk themselves out of doing something they love. Okay, all right. Well, I'd say, first of all, don't be like everybody else. That's the first thing I'd say. Um, everyone's going to try, not everyone, most people are going to try to make you fit into a box. It happened to me most of my life. It, it, it continues to happen to me um, nearly every day of my life. You cannot escape that. Um, but what you need to do is to be brave and to be courageous and to not accept other people's visions for your life. Um, when, you, when I was in junior high, they gave us all these questionnaires that would tell us where we were best suited, what jobs were best suited to do. I say the hell with that. Um, don't let anyone make those decisions for you. Don't even buy into um, the idea that you need to have a job. Who's to say in 15 to 20 years from now that the jobs will even exist? We don't know. Um, what I would say, the best thing you can do, uh, this comes from um, Seth Godin, wrote a book that was a big influence to me. It was called The Icarus Deception, and what he said was, the, the Icarus Deception, okay. what he said to really resonate with me, um, I, I had a, a terrible job in the corporate world, and many, many jobs in the corporate world, but one, one in particular, and, and what, was, what was forced on me was to be furniture in the room, to keep my head down, to participate in groupthink, and from a young age, I, I hated that kind of stuff, and so it really pissed me off. And um, I'm sure that it pisses off a lot of people to be part of that. And what Seth Godin said is, that time has passed um, where, the, where, that, where, that is, where that trait was valuable. If you look at what people did in the 1950s, 1960s, people could fit in as cogs and machines back when you could expect a pension at your job. These days, those jobs don't exist anymore when you can expect um, a great pension when you retire, when you can expect excellent health, health, health benefits. Um, what's, what's necessary is to make your own path, to be an entrepreneur, to step out on your own and say, I'm not going to do what I was told. 
I'm not going to do what society expects me to do. I'm going to forge my own path. And by forging your own path, um, as Seth Godin would say, you will find your people. He calls it their, the tribe. You will find your tribe. You will find people that it resonates with. And when you do that, um, you, will, you will achieve a critical mass. It may not happen right away. Again, going back to our culture, we, we want instant gratification. It may not happen right away. There will be moments when you feel completely isolated and you'll feel alone, especially when you go against the grain. But over time, if you stick with it, you will develop those relationships. So long as you bring value to other people and you treat people with kindness. I like that. If you could go back to your younger self, what advice would you have to skip a step if you could give yourself shortcuts in life? Um, well, this may sound counter to what I just said, but uh, I think oftentimes I was too quick to say uh, I was I burned too many bridges when I was when I was younger. I think I was too quick to to um, uh, sh share my thoughts in, in a way that wasn't always the nicest. Um, I always thought that I could do it on my own, which. And in retrospect, it would have saved me a lot of time and heartache if I knew that the best way to get things done is to, de to develop that critical mass. If you're, especially if you're trying to break into an industry that's difficult to break into, like the entertainment industry, the idea, excuse me, the idea that you can, um, that you're going to be like a Quentin Tarantino, the person that's going to do, that's going to come out of nowhere, and the people are all, all of a sudden going to say, "Wow, look at this genius!" That happens, and that's wonderful when it does. But most likely, if you want to skip a step and to bypass that, what's best is to do, the best thing to do is to align yourself with centers of influence and power. Build your connections with those people. Let them mentor you. Let them show you what they did. First of all, don't burn any bridges. And um, to learn from people and to give back. Make yourself useful and valuable. And then when the time is right, push your own work out there. But, but rather than do what I did, which is to try to go out on my, on my own for so long, I should have spent my time building those connections and those partnerships that I've done in the last few years. I do a lot of, t I do a lot of um, networking these days, ever since I, I started my, my company, Horsemiths. And by having um, that, that old adage, the cliche is true, it's oftentimes not um, what you know, it's who you know. It's, it's building those relationships because those people will help you. Michael, what challenges and or struggles have you faced in your life? A lazy eye. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, um, well, number, uh, a big one when I was growing up is um, that, uh, here's a big one. So when I was a kid, I... Hold. What? Hold. Um, going back to kindergarten. Um, I didn't pay attention to school. Um, I had really bad grades when I was in elementary school because what was important to me was being in my head and my imagination and playing with my friends. Um, going back to when I was a kid, I was always in a gang. I was always the leader of some gang and I was always getting into trouble. And um, I remember teachers would tell my mom that, and dad that I was smart, you know, and, and charismatic and stuff like that, but I wouldn't ever, I never learned what I was supposed to. I never opened the textbooks and did the things I was supposed to do. So I had really bad grades. Um, and I didn't learn the, the concepts I was supposed to learn because, and I, I would just get, I would get kind of coast through school until about, um, what happened was I did that until I was a freshman in, um, in high school. And, uh, so when I was a freshman in high school, um, well, let me go back. When I was in junior high, I was very popular and, um, 
uh, what had happened was, even though I was in eighth grade, I would hang out with high schoolers, and they would drive us around, and I went out to all these parties, and I hung out with a fast crowd. And then when I was 15 years old, I got into a lot of trouble. I had been already been getting into a lot of trouble for a lot of years. Um, I, uh, my friends and I, my dad went out of town for a week, and we took his car out, and we crashed it. And uh, I came home, and I'd also had a party for at my dad's house for several days straight, and so my dad found out. And on New Year's Day, 1995, my dad and my mother, who they were both divorced, but they got together on this. They, they, they didn't talk to each other about anything except for when I was in trouble. And they, they gathered all the friends, all my friends in one room, there was about six or six of them, and their parents, and I was, I basically was blamed for everything that had happened in the last few years. And at that point, I had done so much lying and got in so much trouble, that even though I wasn't really guilty for everything, it didn't matter. No, no matter what I said, I was guilty for it. So I was grounded for six months straight. I wasn't allowed to... Um, and you are in high school. When I was 15 years old, I was in high school. I wasn't allowed to use the phone. I wasn't used to, allowed to um, watch TV. I wasn't allowed to go anywhere but go home and, and go to work. I mean, go to school and go home. And then I was banned from all my friends' house for life. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, I and, can't even see that about you. Yeah, so <laughs> what... And, and, I, and, then, um, and then after that, I got in trouble one last time. Um, I, I, my friends and I, I slunk up with some other friends. And then we went, I went out to see a girl. And I was 15, and I, I, the police ran out. I, I broke curfew, and so the police um, chased me, and they caught my friend. But they didn't catch me, and my friend told who I was. And so they, the police came to my parents' door. They knocked on the door, and they, they made me surrender myself. Wow. They had a warrant out for my, my arrest. Did, that, did it have anything to do because you said your dad was mayor? Mm-hmm. We were living in a different town. Okay. That was earlier. Um, and so I had been in trouble for basically like three years straight. And, um, did you feel that going back that was justified? What? Going back, do you feel that your dad was justified? My dad was justified? The, that he, this time out in life, did you feel it was justified? Oh yeah, yeah, I mean I do. Um, but here's the thing about that. Um, I, was, I was so tired of being in trouble. I was a pariah in so many ways. Um, people did not think well of me. And I was tired of being, I was basically just hated. Yeah. You know, I had friends, but I, I was so tired of being in trouble. And so tired of getting bad grades and, and having and just seeing being on the outside of everything for so long that what I decided to do is I decided to throw myself back into everything. So my sophomore year, I went back and I learned relearned everything I was supposed to have learned elementary school, junior high. Um, I I, I uh, studied um, all the time, night night and day, and I took a lot of courses on how to do time management. I learned all these things in a span of two to three years that I never learned. Um, and there was definitely a learning curve for me, but I'm happy to say that by my junior year, I won Best All-Around Student, and I, I was accepted to a special program. It's called the Dan Forth Award. Um, that was invited to go to, um, there was like this, I forgot what it was called, but uh, Boys Town or something like that. It was a Boys Town. Something like that where you got to work with, uh, you got to be with other up-and-coming people, and I completely turned my whole life around. So, I guess, my, this is a long story, but what I was, because my challenge was, <laughs> Growing up, I wouldn't listen to anyone. I was very stubborn, and I'm still stubborn about things. I had a big problem with authority, and I also had, um, I, there wasn't anyone that could tell me something. I had to learn it for myself, and it, it, it was, um, I had to hit rock bottom in my life to really make the changes that I did, mm -hmm. and that was my, my biggest challenge, and then, um, you know, I turned my life around because of that. Right. So what, what makes you cry? Cry? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the passage of time, um, when I think about 
you know, milestones. I'll tell you, recently I, I was, uh, I took my son, he's three, to his first day of preschool. And um, we were going to the classroom and I was seeing all these fun things. He's got these toys and these dinosaurs and this little mud pit. And um, I was looking at him and I could see that he'll never be the baby again. And even though he's only three, I could see, I could, could see the future happening, you know, going to school and then his, you know, career and his life and just the passage of time and knowing that everything is temporary um, really got to me. And so, like, I got choked up and yeah. just knowing that um, time only goes, as far as we know right now, only goes in one direction. Right. And that just to appreciate it while, while it's occurring and knowing that, you know, you're not going to get another chance at it. And right. so to, to appreciate those moments, like, they, they seem, things can seem like they take forever when they're happening, but then they're, then they're gone. Right. And just to, to appreciate them because they're not coming back. So you're proud of, of the work you've done. Um, I appreciate writers, so I, I, I feel with you. I've always said since I was a little girl that writing is, is a legacy that no one can take away from you. So do you feel that when your children are grown up and one day you will pass on this earth as we all do, that you, you have your mark, that your children can can grab your visions that you had and maybe go go and run more within what you did. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's that's um, that's what I've tried to do. I, I for a long time, like I said, I had a bad corporate job, and I felt like it was. I felt like I, I my potential was being squandered, and that um, that I would not have any. That it, I felt purposeless, and I felt like I was cheating myself and. In cheating other people mm-hmm. by not doing the work that I was meant to do, but I do. Um, and my, I'm an entrepreneur, and there, there are some days that are harder than others. There's some days that are glorious and wonderful, but whenever they're difficult, I, I, I do try to think to myself that I'm that, that the work that I'm doing is meaningful. That I, I really feel that I make a difference for the people that I, that I work with and, and I help. So, what is your why? What is my why? Um, well, then I, my why is that. I think that we can do better. I think um, that the biggest struggle that we, the, the biggest setback or the, or the hardest thing that I think is setting back the human race is the fact that is, is disunity consciousness. I think that people view each other as competition. I'm not against competition, but what I mean is we see other people as the other. And that's what allows things like wars to happen because we see other people as subhuman. Um, it's the reason why we are able to cheat people and hurt them because we see them, we see that if we do something to them, it's not going to come back to us. Well, I disagree. I, and it, I, didn't know, I did not always feel this way, but I feel it now. I all one organism experiencing life individualistically. And my why, my why is to help people sense the greater connections between us all, to, to create art, to create meaning in life, to help people find their meaning, and to, to, to create value in this world, and to help people come together in a way. Um, it's, I love storytelling, but to me, and, and to me, uh, storytelling is a, way that we can, is a way that we can change the story that we tell ourselves, and I wanna change the, the story that we tell ourselves. I wanna change that story, to recognizing that um, the value of each human being and every, every actually every organism, every animal, every um, <clears throat> object or uh, tree, everything, everything has, a, has a purpose and meaning behind it. And when we can 
change that story, then, then we can change the way that we see ourselves and our place in the world. And, and that's what I, I see myself participating in, in, that, um, in that awakening. That's beautiful. Uh, what, so what do you feel is the meaning of life? Me of life. Um, well, it's, it's part of what I just said there, but I say the meaning of life is to find something that, that gives you value. Um, for a long time, I told you my, my, degree, was, um, my, my degree was in philosophy, and, and for, for some time in my life I was a nihilist, and I didn't believe that life had any meaning, and I think that a lot of modern science would reduce us to basically biological machines, you know, that, that everything is a machine and that it doesn't have a purpose. We just, we're just here, we're, we're automatons. But I think that, that that's not true. I think that the purpose we have is to find our purpose. I think it's to find what, what makes life meaningful to each one of us. And each one of us has a part to play in that. And so, you know, if you're a doctor, perhaps your, your, your value is to help heal people and to make them value their wellness. Um, it, perhaps if you're, um, if, if you're, if you're uh, a contractor like my, like my father-in-law, it's to build homes for people to, to live in and to build places for the community. So I think um, the meaning of life is to find your own purpose and your own value, and you cannot, um, you cannot accept what other people tell you is the value of your life. It is, is wholly existential and, um, and um, up to that person. So each person has their own meaning of life. It, the, on the umbrella concept is you have to find meaning of life, but you have to find that existential individualistic meaning for you, something that gives you value, something that improves the world, improves life for other people. I love that. Okay, so uh, what can the youth teach us? I think the youth can teach us the plasticity of thinking. What's nice about the youth um, today, well, in any generation, is that they're not beaten down, they don't fall into, you know, we, it's my belief that we're the product of our thoughts. And the older that you get, the more stuck in your way of thinking. So you'll meet people that, that say, this is the way it has to be, and this is, this is how it has to go down like this. But what's beauty, beautiful about youth is they don't think that way. Is that they haven't, those, those thoughts haven't imprinted themselves in such a way that they can't get out of that thinking. And, and that they're open-minded to other, to other ways of thinking. It doesn't hurt either that they're, um, that they're not stuck in the system, you know, they don't have to, most of them don't have mortgages, most of them don't have kids, you know, yet, so that they're, they're, they're in a sense free-spirited in, in a way where they're independent and they're willing to give things a chance, they're really willing to try things that older people aren't, and I think that's really needed these days because um, there's a lot of limited thinking out there, which, you know, when people get invested in the system, people get invested in, in the story that they tell themselves. I got a big house, I got a mortgage, I got a car, I got to make sure my kids go to this private school. Well, a young person that doesn't have those kind of attachments and hasn't been brainwashed that way can think to themselves, yeah, but this isn't the best that we can do. We can do better than this. So that's what I think they can teach us. Perhaps they have less limits. Yeah, exactly. Okay, my last question. So if you only had a few months to live, and had the opportunity to write the one last book or story, what, what would it be about? Wow. Um, I guess I would tell them, I would tell them my story, I guess. Like, I would tell the story of what happened to me. Um, um, I don't intend to actually do that story because uh, it's, um, 
you know, there's a lot of people involved and people may get their feelings hurt. And of course, there's a lot of personal stuff with me and I don't really intend to do my own autobiography at <laughs> any time, but if I had to and, and I was going out anyway, then I'd probably tell the crazy story of my life and uh, hopefully it'd be valuable to somebody else. Yeah. Okay. Well, that concludes the interview, Michael. Thank, Thank you. you. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Happy Lifestyle Online Show. For more information on growing with our community, follow us at happylifestyleonline.com. I'm Lisa Caprelli. Talk to you next time.